0: in a funny way it's the risk that something bad could happen and the fact that procurement is in a lot of cases the one standing on the wall making sure it doesn't that both makes our role more visible sexier riskier more exciting it's more time intensive it's no longer this okay well two and a half years ago we sourced printer toner and now we're going to resource <laughs> printer toner <laughs> you know next thing you know everyone's <laughs> sleeping and looking at their watches no 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 really there's a tsunami there's a strike there's a factory fire gdpr regulatory changes environmental impact studies labor rights global supply chains it's scary and dangerous and exciting and creates exciting opportunities all at the same time and i think people that are looking for okay i know i want to be in business i know i want to do something operational Where should I focus? Some of those news stories, whether they're happy endings or whether they're sad endings, that end up putting procurement supply chain in the news, I think that is about the best advertising we can possibly get from a recruiting and retention standpoint.
1: Hi, I'm Danny, And I'm Nicole. Welcome to the Spend Culture Stories podcast, where we explore the connection between company spending and culture. Join us as we dive deep into understanding the people, processes, and tools that make up spend as a whole for what we call spend culture. Hey, everybody. Welcome to another episode of the Spend Culture Stories podcast. Today, we have Kelly Barner from Buyer's Meeting Point. So I know a lot of the readers and the viewers of our blog They know about this blog, and I'm sure some of you guys are already subscribed to Kelly. So Kelly, thank you so much for joining us today.
0: Thank you so much for having me, and thank you to everybody for listening.
1: Yes, of course. I'm sure I'm curious about this, just as some other people. I know you've had over 10 years of experience in procurement. So what made you eventually start Buyer's Meeting Point?
0: So the funny thing is, I missed getting founder's credit at Buyer's Meeting Point by about six months So it was actually started by two colleagues of mine that I had worked with previously in my procurement career. So before starting the 10 years at Buyer's Meeting Point, I worked for, I think like five, six years as a procurement practitioner first, and then as a consultant. So when I was working as a practitioner, I worked for uh, an organization called Ahold USA, based here on the East Coast of the U.S. that owns a number of very large grocery chains. They owned U.S. Food Service at one time, at least when I was in procurement there. Um, So I got a lot of experience actually working hired services in procurement. So if there's anything anybody ever wants to know about... All of the interesting and sometimes disgusting services that are required to keep a supermarket up and running, I'm always open to questions about that. But I also worked with some of the centralized corporate services. So rather than having to get my start in procurement working on materials and then making the somewhat difficult transition over to services. I started writing services off the bat and I've I've always considered that a, a huge advantage. I can't take any credit for it. I was assigned there. <laughs> but that's where I got my practitioner experience. And then from there, I worked at MTORUS for a number of years in advance of them being acquired by IBM. And while I was there, I was the associate director of consulting services. So I would do everything from coming in to do program design where you set up the roles and responsibilities and talent objectives or reporting or process flows or change management, any of those pieces that kind of surround an implementation that certainly there's an advantage to understanding the technology that has been bought and is being rolled out, uh, but all of kind of the human and process aspects that go along with it. So I did those things for a number of years. And then for anybody out there that's been in consulting, you know, it's about 400, 450% travel. And personally, the travel just didn't work for me anymore. So that's when I switched. And I started working with a, a colleague that I had met at Ahold USA just to make available a resource for procurement professionals. So if you need information, where should you go? And the more information we gathered at Buyer's Meeting Point over time, the more it became necessary for us to help filter or curate or comment on that content. And that's how we got started into the blogging and writing and social media and covering the space. So it's been an absolutely fantastic journey. I never set out to be an entrepreneur, I'm sort of an accidental entrepreneur, but it has spoiled me forever. I don't think I'll ever be able to go back and take a traditional job where I sit in an office and work for other people. I, I like working for me. I like the freedom. Um, it's certainly a challenge because you own the successes just as much as you own the failures. But it's been an absolutely fantastic journey and it's allowed me to stay in procurement in sort of a creative virtual way.
1: I love that. I love how you kind of stumbled upon this entrepreneurship journey. And now, you know, you're making procurement more accessible to a lot of people because I know uh, procurement in general as a career, sometimes it's hard to actually find a centralized place online where you can get those resources. Yeah. You might have like ISM or more of these professional councils, but I think what you've created at Buyer's Meeting Point is something that people can just go and read and can really trust.
0: Thank you. Well, I certainly hope so. I've always put a lot of effort into maintaining objectivity and being honest about the content or or the revenue model or anything like that. So I certainly hope that it's useful to people. It is certainly a labor of love.
1: That's awesome. And I'm curious now, because you mentioned what are the dirty stuff going on in supermarkets. (laughs) So what are some things that go on when you were working in the supermarkets? Like what are some of the spend that you guys had to commit to that maybe people will be surprised about? Sure. So
0: there's really ooky stuff like grease trap cleaning that's very necessary in in delis and, and meat departments. But I think the two most interesting services projects I ever sourced, I think one would be snow removal. I'm based about an hour west of Boston and the chains that were part of our portfolio uh, stretched all the way from Massachusetts, New York, Pennsylvania, and certainly running down further and further south on the East Coast where snow is not such a big deal, but For an awful lot of the locations, it was, and it was just shy of 200 locations that needed to be plowed. You know, when do you plow? Is it three inches? Are there noise restrictions around when the companies can come? Where can the snow be put? There's a lot of stores in New York where you can't have snow piles and you have to either pay to remove that snow from the location or you have to bring a melter truck on site which is really cool, but very expensive. That was interesting. But by far, the best stories were all when I did pest control. And that is everything from preventative measures like the lights you would put in the bakery and deli or regular treatments from a service provider right down to how do you handle it when you get a bird in the store? And I I won't go into the details, but it's very involved. And there's actually a lot of animal rights involved in that and zoning regulations and things that have to be maintained. So very exciting stuff that I don't think a lot of people think about when they go grocery shopping.
1: That sounds almost like a comedic situation where you have like a bird fly in oh, yeah. and you're like, oh my God, why is this here? But from like a procurement professional's perspective, you're like, oh, now I have to source out all these vendors to help me deal with the situation. Exactly. And for
0: anybody that's ever worked procurement at a B2C company, I mean, it really doesn't matter what kind, you are forever changed as a consumer in that industry. right? So Me going into a supermarket, I'm going to see things even 10 years later very differently from somebody who maybe knows a lot about pharma or knows a lot about, I don't know, making movies or working in marketing. You do experience things differently once you've really been behind the scenes.
1: I'm sure I think a lot of consumers like myself, when you know, I walk into a store where even when I talk to somebody, I only see the surface level. One of the ladies that I talked to on the podcast, she's actually the CFO and also the head of procurement, because they kind of put it two in one uh, at a art gallery. And she mentioned you don't know how many different costs and vendors we have to deal with just from moving a Jackson Pollock painting into the art gallery. So that's something that really opened up my eyes.
0: There's a lot more science behind everything we see than most of us realize.
1: Yes, absolutely. That's really awesome insights, Kelly. So, speaking about procurement, also kind of the things that you've seen, based on your experience and knowledge, what are some of the new skills that you think procurement professionals need to develop in order to really move forward in their career, especially today? Sure. So, I think
0: for me, this kind of falls into two buckets. The first bucket is, I would say, around communications. I mean, obviously, there's been a lot of talk around procurement has to be able to present. We have to have the skills to influence. We have to be able to write good emails, sometimes on very sensitive topics, either to the C-suite or to a supplier. So we have to have good outgoing overt communication skills, speaking, written, all of that kind of thing. But there's also the more passive communication skills that in some cases I think are even more important. So for instance, the decision around timing. So I receive a critical email from a stakeholder or from a supplier. Do I email back or do I call? How long do I wait? Do I involve anyone else? There's a lot of strategic decisions around that. And then of course, all of the things involved with absolutely anything face-to-face. I was having a conversation with somebody earlier today about being in a people business. And really, when you think about it, except for maybe very hands-on manufacturing, every single business in the world is a people business because it doesn't matter what you're doing. You have to be good at working with other people. So, reading situations, reading body language, being able to handle a difficult situation on the fly, thinking through the little details like where do you sit people in a meeting or how do you open a meeting? How do you handle conflict resolution, whether you're an intermediary or whether you're one of the involved parties? I think a lot of those I guess I'm calling them passive communication skills, but there's still actions required, sort of the reading of other people and the interpretation of situations. I I think that's incredibly important. And the other thing that I would say, and this isn't necessarily new, I think it's a, a need that continues, but is general business acumen understanding what's going on in the greater context of the company, and that might be following news about your own company. It might also be making sure you set aside some time every day for trade publications or reading the Wall Street Journal, something broad like that. I think it's very easy to focus on exactly what's on our desks every day And forget why we do it, the bigger system that we have to fit into. So, really being educated about the business world in general. But then, on a detailed level, you know, you have to be comfortable reading financial statements, but you also have to understand sort of the unique rules that go into creating those statements, because in some cases, they shape how procurement's results are captured. It's not as simple as, oh, you know, we saved. A million dollars on this product or service. And so look, look, the bottom line got a million dollars bigger. It's not that mm-hmm. simple and incredible value may have been gained. The same is true when maybe we're working a cost avoidance type project and we can't mitigate all of the increase. So you're still absorbing an increase, Well, okay, well, not all of that increase is going to be immediately evident on the financial statements. And so it's understanding things like the difference between consumable supplies versus a capital expenditure that has a depreciation schedule that's going to affect how the company recognizes the acquisition of that asset as well as the savings that go along with it. And a lot of times it also comes down to what the working capital policies are of that organization, given, you know, what's the current cost of capital? What are the other projects that are going on? All of those things should either be affecting procurement's priorities or should be affecting how we report our results and where they expect that effort to be evident to people following the company.
1: The part where you mentioned um, a lot of it has to do with collaboration. I completely agree. I think one of the things that kills companies is siloing. And definitely some people that I've talked to in procurement, they've talked about having procurement people kind of being the centralized point of maybe buying or searching for suppliers, but um, there is no communication like what you mentioned, where are we finding the right suppliers for the needs of the business and what are the needs of the business? So speaking to that, what are some of the main stakeholders that you think procurement really needs to kind of collaborate more on and also kind of making sure that the KPIs are being aligned within an organization?
0: The obvious stakeholders are the CFO and all of the distributed buyers, I think one of the things that's an incredibly cool that we've seen happen over the last few years is that as procurement has started to maybe relax a little bit and take a more strategic point of view, we've accepted the fact that some of the buying activity has to be distributed to different people in the organization. Sometimes that means globally. Sometimes it just means different desks within our own building, But allowing technology to either take people through a guided buying process or giving people greater autonomy around making supplier selections or making a purchase off of an approved supplier list, that's incredibly empowering, but it also creates a lot of different kinds of stakeholders. So there are stakeholders in the form of budget owners that are looking to us to help them achieve what the business needs of their team or their function and, and do it in a, a resource-efficient way. But then there's also the person that needs a new keyboard, the person that needs access to a temp. If there's anybody in the company that needs a product, needs a service in order to do their job, and it is so difficult to get that that it diminishes their performance. That's a problem. So all of those people are procurement stakeholders. And we need to be sure that whether it's the user interface they're dealing with, whether it's a governance or approvals process, or whether it's something as simple as knowing you know, when is it okay for me to run down the street to Office Depot and put something on my P-card versus when do I have to go through a punch-out catalog and and get some kind of formal approval? The simpler and easier and lower friction we can make everything, the better. But really, almost everyone in the company is some kind of stakeholder to procurement.
1: I love how you mentioned that just because um, we have this term that we kind of coined at Procurify where we call it spend culture. And kind of like company culture, everyone kind of has a place in the company to influence how and when to spend company resources. So like what you're saying, we're kind of democratizing the spend to everybody. Like even at Procurify, I do have the authority to buy things if I need to, but obviously it has to go through some internal controls before that happens. So I'm Curious, how can procurement as a department kind of work together with other departments to make spending on behalf of the company a little bit more proactive? What are some of the processes that you recommend some people take So I think part of it is around perspective. When procurement thinks about
0: doing our job, when we think about spend management or spend analysis, we are thinking literally about the spend. So we might go into our tool, we might go into our reports and say, okay, I'm meeting with this team in this business unit and we're going to discuss how much they've spent versus what allocated budget they have left for 2019. This is the time of year those conversations happen. And we might be looking at it as you have X dollars left, or you've even worse, gone over by X dollars. We might be looking at it from a taxonomy point of view, right? Where did your money go? A lot of times it's common to do sort of an 80-20 with their supplier list. So for this business unit, this team, what are the suppliers they spent the majority of their money with? Are those suppliers on contract? But when we're talking to the people in that group, that's not how they're looking at it. Procurement sees the evidence of their business activity in piles of dollars. They see, oh, I put the circular out on time. Or they see the fleet of trucks had the fuel they needed, even though there was a a hurricane coming and, and access to fuel was a difficult thing. So, I think the important thing for procurement to remember is when we prepare for these meetings, we're looking at dollars and cents, we're looking at supplier names, we're looking at category taxonomy. But the people that we're meeting with think about their business plan, they think about the objectives and KPIs that they needed to fulfill for the year. And I think procurement can really make serious progress if we can find a way to connect those two things. And sometimes it's a matter of saying, okay, I can see that you spent a a huge chunk of your budget with this supplier or on this product or service. Talk to me about how that product or service is connected to you being able to achieve your objectives. And I think it's the power of language. Maybe I look at it this way because I spent the vast majority of my time writing these days, but I do think language is an important thing and for anybody that's ever been through the experience of rolling out someone's spend analysis solution to a team for the first time you know you can almost hear the drum roll and everybody's excited they want to see the charts and graphs <laughs> right and then you put it up and especially if you go with a standardized taxonomy you put it up and there's this odd silence and then you kind of start to see the heads go back and forth. And then finally somebody goes, Mm-mm, no, 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 this isn't our spend. This is not us. You've clearly loaded the <laughs> wrong thing. You're showing us the wrong year or you're, you're- They're in denial. Exactly. Your categorization is broken. It's almost never wrong. I mean, everybody has to do some refinement, but what it comes down to is they look at buckets of spend, or they look at the way the supplier information is recorded. And because it's not familiar to them, it makes them question the message of the spend itself. And so procurement can avoid having that mistake keep being made in, in perpetuity by, don't talk about it in procurement speak when you're sitting down with stakeholders or budget owners. Talk about it in terms of the product or service that they're buying and how that's connected to their mission as a team. I think putting a little bit of effort into that and you know preparing a mental translation, because let's face it, you know we do spend time with this in our taxonomy or the way that the supplier information has been standardized and enriched and presented back to us. Of course, that's the way we're going to be most used to looking at it. But if we can put it in terms that are familiar, they're going to be that much more receptive to our conclusions, our recommendations, our advice. And I think it goes a long way to building those relationships still with the data as a foundation for what we're talking about, but making sure that everyone understands, no, no, procurement does actually know what we do and they see how important it is and they care and they want us to succeed. Sometimes it's just about choosing the right words.
1: Absolutely. You've summarized it in such a really nice way. I talk to CFOs on the podcast too, and they sometimes say the same thing. They're like, Yeah. Sometimes I don't realize what the language I'm Mm. using is so jargony when I speak to other people in the company because that's just how I speak. But then once you realize who are the stakeholders and what is the message that needs to be conveyed and how to say it, that's when you really unlock the power of collaboration.
0: Absolutely. Putting everybody onto that same playing
1: field. Exactly. Not everybody understands what supplier... I don't know, categorization of spend is, I don't even know, it would be something like that. Yeah, absolutely. (laughs) Even for myself, like I speak to a lot of procurement professionals, but sometimes when they say like a keyword, I'm like, can you please explain that to someone who's not in procurement?
0: (laughs) Exactly. Or, you know, in some cases it's as simple as what does that mean to you? Yeah. Right? I mean, I've even seen cases, maybe I'm doing searching for news articles or whatever, but even CPO doesn't always mean the same thing. It's not always procurement. So it's a matter of understanding the context of the person that you're speaking with and clarifying any of that right up front, because people are typically very understanding and they want to connect. They want to use the same language.
1: Absolutely. That's awesome that you mentioned that. So I'm curious also, Kelly, you mentioned tools also in your chat about kind of like making sure that people are understanding when a solution is being rolled out. During your career, what are some of the tools that you've personally used that you've liked or disliked?
0: So I'm definitely a number cruncher by instinct. So I always loved anything that allowed me to get my hands into the data and look at it different ways, slice it and dice it, pull up some visuals. I, the very first thing that I ever used or helped implement was spend analysis. I think it doesn't get enough talk. I personally think it's it's incredibly important. In some ways, the fact that it doesn't get discussed is actually a testament to how well it usually works because very rarely is there silence around something that, that people are unhappy about. But I've also helped select and implement e-sourcing, e-procurement, contract management, and then sort of the surrounding platform technology that plugs a lot of those things together. You know, we were just talking about common language and I'm pretty sure this isn't the trending wording anymore. So hopefully people will be with me or or you're certainly welcome to to correct me. Mm-hmm. We used to talk about it as modules, right? So spend was a module, sourcing was a module, analytics would be a module, contract management, reporting, things like that. And then there was sort of the glue that stuck all of those modules together and gave it a common user interface. Uh, and there's actually a lot of thought that has to go into selecting and rolling out and user acceptance testing. And then the ongoing maintenance, you know it's you can never just roll out any technology and say, well, now my work here is done. I'm going to go back to my desk and take long lunches and read the comics and, <laughs> and that kind of thing, right? Because it's the business processes that lean on that technology are always evolving and new people are always coming to the company and they have different perspectives or experiences with different kinds of technologies. So there are always changes that are going to exist. And I don't think that has changed, even though sort of the cloud computing software as a service model has made it so much easier to take updates and, and avoid customization, right? Anything you can configure versus customize is, is always easier. But at the end of the day, I think it matters less exactly what you're rolling out and more your understanding of why you're rolling it out and how people are going to engage with it. And that comes right back to all those communication things. I mean, yes, you can implement something faster by, sitting in a conference room and making unilateral decisions and then ramming the software down everybody's throats, but then no one's going to use it. You're not going to get any value and everyone's going to hate you versus take the time, have the conversations, bring the perspectives to bear, invest in communications around rollout, make sure you have champions, you know, pick some key people that are effective influencers or networkers within the company and, you know, buy some bagels or throw a luncheon and bring them in and win them over. (laughs) Because sometimes it's making that kind of an effort that makes adoption so much easier for procurement. We truly can't do it alone.
1: Yeah, absolutely. From a vendor's perspective, too, this is what we've seen that makes it really successful is when we um, also have the ability to talk to other people inside the organization and just having that conversation for all of us in a room to really make sure, do you understand why you're implementing this? And do you know what some of the value you'll be getting? And just having that two-way conversation with multiple people in the room, we found that super helpful to really make a successful implementation, making everybody else happy, too. Absolutely. And to that point, I also think people under
0: leverage their solution providers, right? I mean, when your job is to either sell or demo or roll out or support the solution, you know 9 times out of 10 if a question or a problem arises it's not the first time i mean somebody always has to be the first person to think of a question or or a new way to use something and every problem happens you know for the first time once but i think because procurement spends so much time being sold to on behalf of the suppliers of our company we are often resistant to ask for feedback and advice and just plain help from our own solution providers. It reminds me of that old expression that it's the cobbler's kids that don't have decent shoes, Mm -hmm. right? And I think procurement makes the mistake of we talk and talk about supplier relationships and them being important and they're strategic, but then in our own direct supply relationships, and I think the most important among which is the relationship we have with our procurement technology providers. We're not always open to that. We don't want to hear feedback or we're not willing to ask a question or we err on the side of saying like, oh no, if we give them too much information, they're going to have too much leverage. Mm -hmm. But if it makes you get more value out of the solution, then maybe there's some ROI there too. So I always would advocate having been in that consulting implementation role myself at a solution provider ask questions, make the most of that relationship because it will improve the value you get out of the technology that you're licensing.
1: Absolutely. Some of the most meaningful conversations were actually with people that didn't end up using us, and that was fine. Because after talking to us, they realized, oh, this is actually some of our issues. The problems that we were talking about maybe isn't actually the true issue. So by having that conversation, we were like, okay, maybe you guys aren't a perfect fit, but... This is what we've seen other companies like you do. And they were like, oh, yes, it is not a perfect fit. But however, thank you so much for adding that value. That's right. I now know someone who might be a good fit for you. So both sides, there's value to it.
0: Absolutely.
1: Awesome. Well, speaking to procurement as a department in some organizations, I know we talked to a lot of tech companies and emerging companies that might not actually have procurement yet. So I'm curious on hearing from your perspective, when do you think procurement as a department is needed and when does the tipping point usually kind of fall under?
0: This is such a tricky thing and I've watched a lot of companies go through this. I think the simplest answer I can probably give is that everybody needs it six months before they're in a position to get it right? I mean, really the best way to do it is to put process people and technology in place before you're truly in a position to leverage them. But the reality of business, especially at any kind of small or or startup organization, is that you won't have the time, the headcount, the resources to make that possible. So I think then the decision comes down to, first of all, are you a professional services firm or are you in some kind of production or manufacturing environment? Usually production and manufacturing are going to have to put something in place sooner because the first time you make one widget and you have the components to make that one widget, okay, you're officially managing inventory. And once you're managing inventory, you need to have the centralized supplier information, the contracts, all of that so that people can manage replenishment. You definitely need that much sooner or you will very quickly run into trouble. I think it ends up being driven by demand more than it necessarily gets driven by okay we need to be really efficient with these resources and so let's do some spend analysis right and and build a, a sourcing wave chart usually mm-hmm. it's first based on okay i need help or i need a product how on earth am i supposed to get it and once that question gets asked a few dozen times and there's no consistent answer okay now you officially know you've reached that point where you're 6 months past when you should have implemented the technology I think professional services firms can get away with it a little bit longer just because it's a different nature of contract. But I think the nice thing is you don't have to go big bang, right? You can identify, okay, we we should have done something before now, but now it's a pressing need. Pick one place to start, pick a solution that's effective in that one place Maybe even leverage either uh, the the personnel at the service provider, or if they have some kind of consulting agreement in place where you can bring in some temporary flexible headcount. It's amazing what you can buy as a service now. So if you're very early in the process of putting together a formal procurement program, you might just be able to work with a, a consulting or service provider that will say. Hey, you need to source office supplies? We can handle that. And then we'll put in a catalog for you, right? Simple, simple. You don't have to go straight to, you know, ERP system. Don't wait for that point. You've got big problems if you try to wait for that point. So it's really very unique too. The industry that you're in, the nature of the business, the culture of the company, of course, there are founders and and CEOs that are sort of of an artistic nature, and they're going to be sort of floaters. They're probably going to put something in place like procurement later because it, it seems confining to them versus CEOs and founders that are maybe more of an analytical bean counting even nature. They're going to say, okay, we got to track the pennies. We got to track the pennies. You know, knowing who's in charge of your organization, that's going to have an awful lot to do with what part of the procurement spectrum gets put in place first, what the objectives of that person are. Sometimes it's just, hey, listen, Make sure we can always get what we need really fast because if we can't deliver on these orders, we're going to lose these early contracts and that will kill us as a company. But other times it might be a little bit further along. We were saying, okay, we have funding and we're looking at what's our ramp to profitability. How long do we have to make it on this funding? You know, That's going to play a role in it too. So its I know that's not a great answer, but its it's very unique to the company. And I think my advice is, ask the question, is it time yet? Is it time yet? And then once you start to suspect that it's time, just pick one place to start and go from there. Don't try to do the whole thing at once.
1: That's really, really good advice because you're kind of ramping up until you can really handle the full thing. Exactly. I'm glad that you mentioned that. (laughs) Don't do something prematurely unless you understand what's behind it. Because you'll
0: just end up redoing it (laughs) truthfully. Exactly.
1: Exactly. That's awesome. We've seen some of our clients where um, we had they had like an office manager who then um, eventually became a procurement manager just because they were too much things for us to buy.
0: Absolutely. And
1: they eventually trained her on procurement and she eventually built a team on her own. So that's also something that we've seen where they grew someone into that role when they didn't even know that was something they would be interested in. That
0: is so fantastic. I love that idea.
1: Absolutely. And I guess procurement as a whole normally a lot of people think of it as something really unsexy, sorry, procurement people, <laughs> or a little bit more boring. <laughs> how do you think a procurement's brand has really improved throughout the years? And how could procurement leaders really attract more younger and fresher talent as well?
0: So I think the biggest thing, ironically, it's kind of the same answer to both of those questions. The bigger thing that has improved procurement's it factor and also the thing that is likely to attract Uh, younger or or up and coming professionals is all of the work that we're doing these days around supply chain risk, right? Anything that's dangerous is inherently sexy, at least in most cases. And so (laughs) this notion that if we mess up, the inventory could be disrupted. If we mess up, we can't deliver orders on time. If we mess up and partner with a supplier who does something illegal, embarrassing, irresponsible. Well, that's negative brand impact to our company. So in a funny way, it's the risk that something bad could happen. And the fact that procurement is in a lot of cases, the one standing on the wall, making sure it doesn't, that both makes our role more visible, sexier, riskier, more exciting. It's more time intensive. It's no longer this Okay, well, two and a half years ago, we sourced printer toner, and now we're going to resource <laughs> printer toner. <laughs> you know, next thing you know, everyone's <laughs> sleeping and looking at their watches. No, 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 really, there's a tsunami, there's a strike, there's a factory fire, GDPR, regulatory changes, environmental impact studies, labor rights, global supply chains. It's scary and dangerous and exciting and creates exciting opportunities all at the same time. And I think people that are looking for, okay, I know I want to be in business. I know I want to do something operational. Where should I focus some of those news stories, whether they're happy endings or whether they're sad endings that end up putting procurement supply chain in the news? I think that is about the best advertising we can possibly get from a recruiting and retention standpoint. Because it makes people aware of the fact that procurement supply chain exists. You know, a lot of colleges and universities don't have dedicated programs. And that's kind of an issue. So step one is making sure people know that these careers exist. Step two is helping them understand what it means and what the long-term potential is. And step three is is hooking people. And I think a lot of times it ends up being, if you have somebody that knows they want to work in business, that knows they want to have an impact on a company, and really has a great sense of curiosity and creativity, if we can just put procurement supply chain in front of them in the right way, they're going to be hooked and they are never going to look back. And that's exactly the kind of people that we want to get, the people that want to sit down across the table from suppliers and say, we have this problem and we don't know how to solve it. Give me your best ideas, go, and let's hash them out. That's pretty exciting stuff, right? And anytime you put Mm -hmm. oversight on top of that or time pressure um, or anything connected to public relations, I think it both raises the visibility and, and raises the appeal of a career in this field.
1: Absolutely. I used to be in PR, so I totally understand uh, the power of really compelling stories. That's really what really made me be interested in marketing as a whole, too, is when people talk about all these scandals that went went on and I'm like, ooh, who actually (laughs) links out the stories or how can I control that within a company to make sure that doesn't happen? So I totally understand what you mean by that.
0: Yeah. No, absolutely. And and a lot of times it really is the bad news story in some ways that gathers the most attention. Even, for example, some of the stories we were reading over the last four to six months coming out of Kraft Heinz, right, talking about the way that they were agreeing upon and recognizing rebates from suppliers, requiring the company to not only completely restate their financials, and have to deal with fines, and then people in procurement being let go. I mean, it's not happy for Kraft Heinz. It's not happy for their investors. It's not happy for, certainly, the people in procurement that were let go. But I also look at that as, okay, if a mistake made by someone in procurement supply chain can cause one or more years of financial statements to have to be reported and explanations to have to be made to shareholders... Don't tell me for one second that a procurement supply chain person who knows their stuff and does their job doesn't have an equally positive impact on that company's financials and shareholder value, right? If the downside is true, then the upside necessarily has to be true as well. And so we don't want it to be all bad news. But I do think there's a logical argument to be made that sometimes no news is good news because it means that everyone is achieving what they needed to achieve and they're keeping the company out of the newspapers for a bad reason. And there's there's a lot to be said for that.
1: Totally. One thing that our CEO sometimes says is uh, when shit hits the fan, you know that that's something that we need to deal with right away. But when it doesn't, that's when you know there's someone behind the scenes that's doing it.
0: Yeah. Or <laughs> in some cases, honest to goodness, standing in front of the fan to take the hit. Right? And no one gets accolades for that. No one gets, good for you, everything was quiet today. But the fact of the matter is somebody had to be there. It's not just luck keeping stuff from hitting the fan. Someone was doing their job day in and day out to keep your company out of the news from that perspective. And it's sometimes hard to make sure people get proper recognition for just plain doing their job. But sometimes all quiet on the front is the best sign you can hope for.
1: Did you see the news report of how Facebook and Google went into a fake invoicing scandal? I think that was recently in the news. That one I didn't see. No. That's a good, juicy-sounding story. Yeah, I'll send it over to you later. Thank but I you. think it was like pretty large sum of money, too, that somehow kind of went past the procurement department and... You know, the finance people, they found it on their desk where it was like an invoice and they just paid it off without even kind of thinking about where it came from.
0: You know, it used to be procurement would only make the news uh, public sector when there was a $5,000 toilet seat or a $10,000 hammer or some ridiculous thing like that, (laughs) right? That used to be the only time we ever made the news. And there's still some of that, right? I live in the Boston area. There's always problems with the MBTA spending or problems with train suppliers or something like that. But I think when you get into these more strategic bad news stories, okay, like now you've really got something, right? Right.
1: Exactly. And now you think about who are the people that approve this? That's
0: right. Absolutely.
1: <laughs> well, Kelly, um, I have one last question for you before we sure. end our chat today. I'm having a great time, by the way, so far. Me
0: too. Thank you again for having me.
1: Yeah, no worries. So my last question, it's kind of like a juicy one. So um, a lot of procurement professionals and I guess other professionals, they think about moving forward in their career, but um, sometimes they kind of stay stagnant. So what do you think mm-hmm. prevents procurement professionals from being promoted?
0: Oh, that is a juicy question. I think part of it is, I don't know if you've ever been at like a, I don't know, a party or a cocktail hour or something like that, not specific to procurement. And someone says, Oh, you're so nice to meet you. What do you do for a living? And and you say, Oh, I'm in procurement. Like, oh, it's this <laughs> apologetic, like you wouldn't get it. It's dull. I'll spare you. I won't go into the details. Oh, you know, you said you were in PR. What a branding nightmare. It's like self deprecating humor gone too far. Whether it's <laughs> in internal conversations, whether it's in our social lives, whether it's in alumni networks or on social media, procurement has a tendency to identify with this, like, oh, yeah, I'm in procurement. I know, I know, nobody's interested. Versus if we could all be a little bit more. Enthusiastic about what we do, be proud of the work that we do, want to talk about the work that we do, then I think there would be this opportunity for magnetism internally. And whether it's another function snatching us away for the knowledge that we have, or whether it's another company snatching us away to do who knows what, if you love your work, if you're proud of your work and you love it and you're excited about what you do, that kind of enthusiasm is infectious. It makes people want to be around you. It makes people say, hey, you know, like that, that's Sam procurement. You know, gosh, I, I just ran into him in the cafeteria and I always walk away from our conversations energized. Maybe nothing happens in that moment, but maybe two months or six months later when there's an opening, somebody goes, hey, you know, I just had this crazy idea what would you think about approaching Sam and seeing if he wants to take a spin in marketing slash sales slash whatever team it happens to be? Creating a good impression and being just generally a positive person to be around. That, to me, is the number one thing. And when we show up in a meeting and people are talking about what they're trying to achieve and we're going, yeah, but tap, 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 numbers on the paper. Tap, 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 look at my chart. People are like, <laughs> Do I really have to deal with this? I'm just trying to do my job. I'm I'm trying to do a good work. I didn't mean to buy from the wrong supplier. So I think it's reading the cues. And you know, we talked very early on about passive or incoming communication. How do people respond to you in a professional context? Are are people eager to hear your gory story about pest control in a supermarket? <laughs> Or are people like, oh, no, he's going to give me a rundown on the numbers again. I don't think I can face it. Quick, tell him I had to go take a phone call. You know, I'm going to run. If we can make it interesting, if we can think about procurement in a way, like the advice I was giving about dealing with with stakeholders, think about it in terms of budget impact, not budget dollars. I think it creates a huge opportunity for us to just be interesting people. And in this day and age, so many roles are knowledge-based and the primary qualification is having knowledge and being interesting to be around. I think there's a lot of opportunity to jump functions, jump industries, jump categories, but first someone has to notice you. They have to remember you. They have to think of you positively and there has to be some level of desire to see you again. So that would be my advice or my impression around, around career progression within procurement because there's no question we have the skills. Skills are not the problem. I think it's more of a branding polish identity that people associated us with where we could use a little bit of work.
1: Absolutely. And um, we've been starting to do some of the events where we host procurement networking. Mm. And um, it's been surprising, actually. Some people, they're actually shy to come out to really meet new people. So that's really something that we're trying to kind of facilitate and push for.
0: Absolutely. And the more we all do that, the better it
1: is for everyone. Exactly. And you can really learn from your peers, too, in some ways that you might not even think possible.
0: Absolutely. It gives you a new perspective on the work that you're doing every day. It makes it suddenly
1: seem new. Exactly. More fun. Well, thank you so much again for um, hopping on the call with me and giving so many good advices to our audience.
0: Fantastic. Thank you so much for having me on to talk about the thing that, that I love most. It was a great opportunity.
1: You're welcome. And I'll be make sure to backlink your site too. So if anyone wants to see what are some of the upcoming procurement events or see some of Kelly's commentary, it's at buyersmeetingpoint.com. So I'll forward it over to our audience. Thanks for tuning in on another episode of Spend Culture Stories. If you like this series, please support us by leaving us a positive review on iTunes or Stitcher and be sure to subscribe so you can get notified of the newest episodes. We try to post every episode every Wednesday. This podcast is sponsored by Procurify, a software solution that is reinventing the way organizations spend. Procurify allows an accessible and convenient way to request for purchases, get approval from your manager, while allowing your finance team to get the visibility and control you need on every purchase. Learn more about Procurify at www.procurify.com.